On a cold January day in 1969, the Beatles had gathered at a soundstage in the company of the last people in the world they wanted to be with, the Beatles. They had been grinding for days, trying to rehearse and gather ideas for their first concert-style performance since August 1966, but it wasn't going well. Paul McCartney was the only member with any sense of urgency, and his patience had wore thin. He made an outburst after having enough of the lack of progress, and finally gave an ultimatum to the rest of the three members, the guys he had shared this band with since 1962. About this concert, Paul said in frustration, quote, There's only two choices. We're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I want a decision because I'm not interested in spending my fucking days farting around here while everyone makes up their mind whether they want to do it or not. Paul waited, but he got no response as the other Beatles just stared back. It was far from the worst moment the Beatles would go through in those days, but it spoke volumes of where the band had ended up. The Beatles would eventually pull through and do the concert, their infamous rooftop concert on January 30th, 1969, but it would be their last triumph together as a group. By the spring of 1970, Paul McCartney had officially quit the band and told the press he had no plans to work with a band again. Just seven months prior, John Lennon had unofficially quit the band, telling Paul and their management that he wanted a divorce from the Beatles. How could this be? The Beatles were the biggest band the world had ever seen. They changed not only the face of music, but pop culture as a whole. They made an impact across the world, more than most political forces, but they did it with a message of love. How did it get to be, then, that those four best friends who achieved more success than they ever dreamed of could barely stand being in the same room together anymore? Couldn't they just set aside their differences for the better good? It wasn't as easy as pointing the finger at one member of the band or blaming it on one incident. The story is bigger than even them, the Beatles. It's a story of human nature, of relationships over time, over how egos deal with the lows and the highs, over four people maturing and growing separately as individuals while still trying to maintain the relationships with each other as they change. It's amazing to me to think of how much the Beatles were adored that even that love couldn't keep them together. And if even the Beatles couldn't stay together, what does that mean for other bands? How is it that so few successful bands can maintain a long career together? That's why the outliers, the bands that do make it, that overcome adversity and stay together through success, fascinate me so much. The Red Hot Chili Peppers are one of those bands. Starting from three punk rock and funk-loving kids in Los Angeles, to four men a part of one of the best-selling bands of all time, and to remain close-knit together within the band all at the same time, it's something that even the Beatles failed to achieve. For this podcast, I want to talk about the path of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and why I think the struggle they endured helped them maintain longevity and led them to one of the best albums of all time. An album that changed it all for the Chili Peppers and helped change the face of popular music for a generation. I want to go over the years of struggle, the highs and the lows that led to the creation of what I consider an all-time great, and that is their 1991 album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic.
the stories behind some of the most famous albums in music history. It's Beyond the Beat with Jared Lennon. It's the late 1970s, and in Los Angeles, there's this Michigan-born young teenager who's looking to go to a new high school. He moved out to L.A. in 1973 as an 11-year-old kid, away from his mom and family, to go live with his estranged father, who he looked up to and idolized. His dad was a struggling actor at the time and would make ends meet by selling drugs. In fact, he would sell to a lot of the famous actors and musicians around the L.A. scene at the time. His nickname was even the Lord of the Sunset Strip. This lifestyle had a major impact on this kid. He'd often hang around his dad and go to parties at places like Sonny Bono's house or go to nightclubs and meet A-list celebrities like John Lennon or Keith Moon. The name of this kid was Anthony Kiedis. Anthony had a very unique childhood that would shape him for the rest of his life. When he was 11, him and his dad made a deal to get Anthony to lose his virginity by sleeping with his dad's 18-year-old girlfriend. At 12 years old, him and his father got high together for the first time after his dad gave him his first joint. Because of his father's lifestyle, Anthony didn't really have much of an innocent childhood, so to speak, and it didn't really allow him to make many friends. He was too busy after school with his father on his adventures, and he couldn't really relate to the other kids either. That problem only got worse for Anthony as he was entering high school for the first time. Him and the friends he did make were going to a school called Uni High, but the school found out that he had been going to his junior high school under a false address. So they told him he had to go to a high school in the district of LA in which he actually lived in, and that was what Anthony calls one of the most eventful twists of fate he'd ever experience. The new school was called Fairfax High. Anthony walked the halls in this new school, feeling a bit like an alien because all the other kids knew each other and grew up together. Anthony naturally took to making friends with the loneliest and most unwanted kids around in the school, and he quickly made a friend by the name of Tony Shure, who Anthony called a, quote, pasty-faced 98-pound weakling. It was through his new buddy, Tony, where Anthony's life would soon change forever, and he wrote about it in his book, Scar Tissue, writing, quote, About a month into the school year, Tony and I were talking in the quad at lunchtime when a tiny, crazy-looking, gap-toothed, big-haired kid came waltzing up to Tony, put him in a headlock, and started roughing him up. I couldn't tell at first if this was friendly fooling around or if the guy was bullying my best friend at Fairfax, so I erred on the side of friendship. I stepped in, grabbed him off Tony, and hissed, if you touch him again like that, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. What are you talking about? He's my friend, the kid protested. It's weird. Even though we were starting off on this I'll-kick-your-ass aggressiveness, I felt an instant connection to the remarkable little weirdo. Tony told me his name was Michael Balzeri, soon to be known beyond the confines of Fairfax High as Flea. Anthony and Flea would soon become virtually inseparable. They lived only five blocks away from each other and would hang out all the time. In a way, they were both social outcasts, and they bonded over that, as well as a genuine love of music and the arts. And they made a great pair. Anthony was this extroverted kid with a lot of weird, real-world experiences already, coming to his school with this fuck-the-masses approach, as he would later put it in an interview. Flea, on the other hand, was an awkward kid, just trying to fit in, and really looked up to Anthony. 
Flea freely states the influence Anthony had on him, later saying, quote, I remember going out to the movies or something, and I had this outfit that I thought was really suave and cool, these brown corduroy pants and top. And I said to Anthony, hey man, like my new shirt? And he said, that's okay, but anybody could wear that. The thing is to wear something else that no one could wear and be totally different. I think that attitude really wore off on Flea, and I think that attitude could really sum up what would become the Red Hot Chili Peppers as a whole. Anthony and Flea would later really embrace that mission statement, the thing is to do something else and be totally different, and I think that's what makes them great. About the early days of their friendship, Flea has also said, quote, From the first day we met, it was intense. We were wild, and we were young, and getting into trouble. And we were doing crazy things all the time, and not always trying to cause trouble, but always trying to make something strange happen. By the way, Flea gave himself the nickname Flea in his mid-teens when he was hanging out with Anthony and a couple other buddies one time. They were all talking about how they shouldn't refer to each other by their real names. He came up with Flea because he thought it summed up his jumpy, wiry, and wacky personality, which I'd say probably still holds true to this day, as anyone would say who's been to a Chili Peppers show recently. Flea was born in Australia on October 16, 1962, actually just 16 days before Anthony was born. His family moved to New York when he was seven, but his parents soon got a divorce. His mom remarried a jazz musician, and they moved out to Los Angeles in 1973, where his stepdad would host all-day jam sessions at their house, probably giving Flea a great insight into jazz music. Unlike most kids his age, Flea did not really care for rock music. He wasn't listening to Kiss or Aerosmith at the time. His heroes were influenced by his stepdad, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, and John Coltrane. I mean, how many kids are exposed to that kind of music when they're young, and especially taking a liking to it? It had to set him up for a different perspective on music as he grew older. Flea's first instrument was not the bass guitar. It was actually the jazz trumpet, not too surprising considering his stepfather's love of jazz. He started playing the trumpet when he was nine, but in high school, Flea started veering away from the world of jazz and became entrenched in rock music after becoming good friends with a Jewish kid, originally from Israel, by the name of Hillel Slovak. Hillel, just like Flea, moved to the United States when he was a young kid. His parents first relocated to Queens, New York, and then Los Angeles in 1967. He received his first guitar when he was 13 as a bar mitzvah present, and got heavy into rock music. Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, but especially Kiss. Hillel and Flea first met each other in elementary school, where they were in the same grade together. Hillel eventually got Flea hooked on all these bands that he liked, which Flea, coming from the world of jazz, hadn't discovered yet. Flea and Hillel really loved each other from the get-go. In an interview with Mojo Magazine, Flea said, quote, I always looked up to Hillel. When I first started playing rock music, he was my mentor, because I didn't know anything. I only listened to jazz. Hillel had a real sense of cool, coolest hair, coolest clothes, a rock star arrogance, which I loved. By the time the boys entered Fairfax High School in 1977, Hillel had been practicing guitar for a few years and wanted to start a band. He had formed a strong bond with three other guys over their mutual love of Kiss, and so they got together, practiced their favorite cover songs, and named themselves Chain Reaction. They played shows in the auditorium of Fairfax High, but soon changed their name to Anthem. The drummer in what was now called Anthem was another one of Hillel's elementary school friends by the name of Jack Irons. 
Jack was also good pals with Flea, as all three of them grew up together, but by this time, Flea only played the jazz trumpet. He didn't really fit in. Until an opening came up on the bass guitar. The original bass player quit soon after Anthem started up, so Hillel's first thought as replacement went to one of his best friends, his musically gifted jazz buddy Flea. So what if he didn't play bass? Surely Hillel could teach him, right? And that's exactly what Hillel went on to do. Because drummer Jack already knew him, he was on board with it. And just like that, we got three of the four original Chili Peppers in this band called Anthem together. Flea, Hillel, and Jack, all still in high school, but still playing more a hard rock, classic rock type of music that was popular during this era of the late 70s. It's pretty crazy to me just how by coincidence like that, the world of rock music got one of the most influential bass players of all time. What if Anthem's original bass player didn't quit? What if Flea stayed on the jazz trumpet and never touched a bass guitar? So by now, Anthem, along with their new bass player Flea, were playing pretty regularly at Fairfax High, and one of their biggest fans by no surprise was Flea's new best friend, the guy he almost got in a fight with when they first met, Anthony Kiedis. Anthony would cheer Flea on and go to every show they played, and so it was just a matter of time before Anthony was introduced to the rest of Anthem's band members, and that was how Anthony would meet another one of the closest friends he'd ever have, and that was Anthem's guitarist, Hillel Slovak. In his book, Scar Tissue, Anthony writes, quote, Within a few minutes of hanging out with Hillel, I sensed that he was absolutely different from most of the people I'd spent time with. I usually felt like the leader in most relationships with kids my age, because of all the crazy experiences that I'd had as a kid. But I immediately knew that Hillel was at least my equal, and in fact, knew a lot of things I didn't. He understood a lot about music, and he was a great visual artist, and he had a sense of self and a calm about him that was just riveting. Anthony continued to write about him in the book, writing about the first time he went over to Hillel's house, writing, quote, We had a meaningful heart-to-heart -heart chat. By the time I left his house, I was thinking, well, that's my new best friend for life right there. Anthony Flea and Hillel soon became best friends. They were a trio together, and they had plenty of common. Broken families, love of music, drug experimentation, and mischief. They got in a lot of trouble together, actually, from jumping off multi-story apartments into pools to stealing pot from Anthony's dad. They formed a strong bond that probably got them through a lot of the tough times that would come ahead as bandmates in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, especially for Anthony and Flea. At this point now, Hillel, Anthony, and Flea are now into the 11th grade, and Hillel and Flea are gaining some traction with their band Anthem. They had a set of shows booked at different high schools that year, and of course, Anthony would be at every one. It was right before they took the stage at one of their early shows, where Anthony got the idea to introduce the band before they went on. He got the idea from his dad, who had been introducing his friends' bands with comic, ironic, Vegas-type speeches. He asked Hillel if he could do it, and Hillel agreed. Anthony remembered his very first stage appearance and wrote about it in his book Scar Tissue, even remembering one of the characters he used, Cal Worthington, who had become famous in LA for his tacky late-night used car ads. His intro went something along the lines of, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, Cal Worthington calls them the hottest rockers in LA. Their parents call them crazy, and the girls call them all the time. But I call them like I see them, and I call them Anthem. 
Anthony got his first taste of stage time and his charisma was perfect for it. He did a great job and was soon the regular hype man for Anthem, getting the crowd fired up before the band went on stage. Remember, this was the late 70s, so that classic hype man you see in rap and hip-hop groups probably had not been invented yet. Maybe Anthony was like a Flavor Flav before there even was a Flavor Flav. And that's how Anthony got started on stage. Anthem would go on to play high school shows in a few small clubs around LA until after the boys graduated high school, with Anthony filling in as MC for most of the shows. Anthem would soon change their name to What Is This?, and they started developing a cult following. Flea was actually emerging as the star of the band, which was odd as a bass player. He was coming into his own, developing that classic style of bass that we've grown to know over the years. That's unique to Flea. I imagine he probably wasn't as technically sound as he is today, but nevertheless, he practiced a ton, and his playing even then got a lot of attention. The climax of what is this shows were even starting to be a Flea bass solo. It was also around this time, the early 80s, where punk rock was becoming more mainstream, and in the LA scene there was no bigger punk rock band than Fear. Fear had just made national headlines by playing their infamous show on Saturday Night Live in 1981. They were well-respected and well-established, and Flea loved them. Anthony, Hillel, and Flea got pretty heavy into punk rock and started seeing bands like The Germs, Black Flag, as well as Fear around LA on the regular. So when the bass player in Fear left that band, Flea had a decision to make. Should he try and go on an audition and take advantage of this opportunity? And if he gets it, should he ditch this band he's been building up with some of his best friends over the last few years? Flea eventually decided that the opportunity was just too good to pass up. He got the audition, nailed it, and got the job as the new bass player in one of his favorite bands. Probably goes to show you how good of a bass player he had become at this point, to just step in and get the job. It was a dream come true for him. To get into an already well-established band that you love, what's better than that? But what was good for Flea wasn't necessarily good for his now old band, What Is This? Hillel didn't take the news very well. Remember, this was the guy who taught Flea the bass in the first place. Without Hillel, there was no bass playing Flea. Hillel was pissed. But after a few months, Hillel forgave him, and Flea had now entered into this weird world of punk rock mini-stardom. Flea always looked back at this time in his life in a positive way, and in an interview years later, you could hear why him, Hillel, and Anthony were so drawn to punk rock, and why they transferred that sensibility to the Chili Peppers, saying, quote, It was so fucking exciting, and it was so much energy and so much vibrancy, and a feeling of this urgency that you wanted to do this thing, and not because you wanted to get a record deal, or not because you wanted to succeed commercially or anything like that, but to be a part in this really cool thing that felt great to be a part of. And that heartfelt passion and that feeling in music is really exciting. It's not just music and it's not just making records, but it's sort of this whole social scene and this whole sense of community. It looked like Flea's bass playing career was taking off in punk rock by early 1983, but it was another genre that had Anthony in Aberdeen at the time. Anthony had become a huge fan of this new genre of music he had heard coming out of the New York scene, hip-hop. There was this hit song in 1982 called The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Got a ton of radio play, and it didn't really fit into any established genre, but people were loving it. 
Anthony was one of those people and went out to see Grandmaster Flash when he performed in LA. Anthony came out of that show in awe and inspired. In hip-hop, the whole idea of the lead singer needing to have a set of pipes on them, like a Freddie Mercury or a Marvin Gaye, went out the window. A song like The Message started to get Anthony thinking. These guys were all writing rhymes and almost speaking it in the song, rather than singing, something him and Hillel were both in love with for a long time up to this point. Why couldn't he give it a try? This new way of rhyming and rapping and developing a character for on stage just like Grandmaster Flash did, could be a way for Anthony to get into the music game. It was during the early days of Flea joining Fear where one of his friends mentioned the idea of maybe doing a little side project. A friend of Flea's, as well as Anthony's and Hillel's, was in a band called Gary and the Neighbors Voices, and that band was scheduled to play at an LA club called The Rhythm Lounge. The friend's name was Gary Allen, and he had seen Anthony perform as an MC for What Is This, recognized his potential as a band leader, and suggested that Anthony, Hillel, and Flea all come together and open up for his band and just do one song. The three were skeptical at first. I mean, Anthony had never sung before. They were all best friends, but they had never even thought to perform together. But this friend, Gary, was insistent he wanted to see Anthony up on stage. So they decided, what the hell, and gave it a shot anyway. A light bulb must have went off in Anthony's head at the time. Why not do my own take on what Grandmaster Flash is doing? Talk about the stars aligning in music at the time. I mean, if this was 10 years earlier, maybe Anthony would have sloughed off his buddy Gary Allen's suggestion of Anthony singing on stage. Anthony knew he could do this new style of rapping a poem, but they needed some music as well. The three of them all had different music tastes, but they all shared the love of a few artists. Obviously, they all love punk rock. They love the energy of this avant-garde punk blended with funk band called Defunct. They all love the raw edginess of this English post-punk group called Gang of Four, and they all love the freedom that shined through Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing. So they channeled all of that, but they were also very adamant that they wanted to do something based in funk, because What Is This had absolutely nothing to do with funk, and they missed that. So they all got together in Flea's living room, along with a drummer in What Is This, their old Fairfax high pal Jack Irons, and they did what would become an essential part of the future Red Hot Chili Peppers, and that's jam and improvise a song together and see what happens. Flea, Halil, and Jack already had great chemistry and kind of knew what the others would do after being in What Is This for so long together, so Flea kicked it off, starting this very fast and funky bass line. Halil followed suit with a funk-style guitar riff, and Jack laid down a beat. Anthony was there, got inspired by what was being played, and stepped out to write lyrics, and wrote what he knew the most about, living in LA. It's kind of funny to hear that even their very first song was written about California and LA. Anthony would obviously make a habit out of that, and now that's a Red Hot Chili Peppers stereotype. Anthony also wrote about his friends and their wild nightlife scene around town. Oh, and another one of what would become an Anthony Kiedis lyrics staple, his sex life. The song was called Out in LA. It was just supposed to be a one-off performance, and they named themselves Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. So they go on to perform their one and only song, and they blow everyone away. They go up, and I guess it's just pure energy up on stage. 
No one had really seen anything like them up to this point, and I imagine everyone in the audience watching just being floored at the intensity of the performance. In his book Scar Tissue, Anthony described his first time performing as a love at first sight ordeal. He said, quote, All the anticipation of the moment hit me, and I instinctively knew that the miracle of manipulating energy and tapping into an infinite source of power and harassing it into a small space with your friends was what I had been put on this earth to do. He continues, quote, When the music started, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had so much juice flowing through me that I did a flip in that tight space and nailed it. And we all just erupted. We had no idea what we were about until that moment. But right into the song, we realized that we were about exploding and killing it with everything we had. And so from that one night in that one little club off Sunset Strip in L.A., one of the most innovative and exciting bands to hit rock music would emerge. If you haven't seen early Chili Peppers, I suggest go on YouTube and search for some of their live performances from the early to mid-80s. I think you'll be blown away at how much punk rock energy they have and how crazy they get on stage. The owner of that bar that night was so impressed with their first performance that he asked them to come back the next week, but to have another song to play. So they did the same thing, got in a room together and jammed. This time to an intricate bass line Flea had been working on for a while, combining picking and slapping in a complicated funk groove while the others followed suit. This style would become the Chili Peppers sound, especially in the early days. This new song was called Get Up and Jump, and they came back to the Rhythm Lounge the following week, exceeded the expectations they now had, and killed it again. Now, the Rhythm Lounge owner was really impressed and booked them on for more shows. The band was now having way too much fun with what they all thought was going to be this quick little one-off side project, and so they decided to keep it going, but call it something different. Now, from the research I did, the origin of the name Red Hot Chili Peppers seems a little hazy. Hillel, Flea, and another friend of the band's all claim they came up with a name. In the book, An Oral Visual History of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, their friend Keith Tree Berry says it definitely came from him, saying, quote, No matter what they'll tell you, no matter how my good friends respin it, I will always take credit for the name. I'm pretty darn sure of that, short of reinventing a time machine. Regardless of where it came from, Anthony wrote in Scar Tissue that it derives from a classic old-school Americana blues or jazz name, and I think that summarizes a lot of the aspects of that band. Fiery, weird, and unique. I remember when I first heard the Red Hot Chili Peppers as a kid, I remember how much it stood out for me and how weird and different I thought that name was. So they now had a name, and it was now looking like they were becoming more of a legitimate band. They started playing pretty frequently around LA, and they were getting a good reputation for their live show. In an oral visual history of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Brendan Mullen, who booked bands at Club Lingerie in Hollywood around the early days of the band, wrote about how much this new form group impressed him, writing, quote, The Chili Peppers sounded even better live than what I could have hoped for. Scarily tight. Speed funk with crank guitar and speed raps? Why not? Jack Irons and Flea together frightened the bejesus out of me. Hillel Slovak was spinning his guitar around while he was playing it like Andy Gill from Gang of Four, goes Hendrix, goes Catfish Collins. Anthony Kiedis was a can't-take-your-eyes-off rapping, bouncing ball of energy. It was also in the very beginning where the band came up with a live, on-stage gimmick 
that they're now forever known for and still have to answer to in interviews to this day. The band was playing at the Kit Kat Club in Los Angeles, a strip club, and Anthony thought that if the woman performing there had to be naked or close to it, that the band should be pretty much naked too. So during the encore, they thought the appropriate thing to do was to show the strippers some solidarity and come out naked as well, except for long athletic socks they would wear over top of their junk. The gimmick worked, it got a huge reaction at the Kit Kat Club that first night they did it, and gave them a lot of notoriety. More and more people were coming out to see these wacky, crazy, high-energy guys with the socks on their dicks. It was a spontaneous thing to do, but it became a signature for the band in those early years, and it would become an iconic image associated with them, even to this day. Little did the band know, but it was also at this infamous Kit Kat show where they would cement their reputation in the eyes of a manager. Lindy Getz was in the crowd that first night, the boys put socks on their dicks, and besides just that gimmick, saw how the crowd reacted to the show as a whole and recognized the potential in them. Lindy had spent 12 years in the record business, working with record companies on promotions before setting up his own production company. He heard about the buzz the Chili Peppers were generating around town, showed up, and offered to manage them on the spot after seeing the energy the band had that night. It didn't take long for these newbies to agree to that, and things were looking even more promising now. After getting a lot of buzz and attention in the Los Angeles music scene, Lindy and the boys decided together that the appropriate next step was to capture some of this music on tape. It would serve as a demo tape they could hand out to record companies in an attempt to convince them to sign them to a record deal. Remember, this is the early 80s, and it was virtually impossible to record a full-fledged album and get any sales and press from it without a record deal. The boys scraped up enough cash to record a demo tape with the drummer from Flea's other band, Fear, as a recording engineer. They recorded five songs, all in one take, together off the floor, and it did what the band hoped the demo tape would do, and that was to capture their live sound and energy. They recorded the first two songs they wrote, Out in LA and Get Up and Jump, as well as three others, Green Heaven, Sex Rap, and Baby Appeal. All the songs were written in the classic Anthony Kiedis style of singing about his friends in LA and sex. All but one, anyway. Weirdly enough, Anthony tried his hand at writing about politics. I say weirdly enough because the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Anthony aren't known for that writing style, especially the early Red Hot Chili Peppers. The song Green Heaven was written about the Los Angeles Police Department that was rife with corruption in the early 80s. And then he contrasted it with lyrics about the free lives of sea creatures like whales and dolphins and the love they seem to represent, chronicling the excesses of the Ronald Reagan years and comparing them to this idyllic ecosystem of animals below sea level. It would be the first go for Anthony and his lyrics on a socio-political level, and really the last for a number of years, but it represented what he was really thinking of and sort of foreshadowed the direction his lyrics would start to take during the blood sugar sex magic years and after. After the demos were finished and the recording process was done, the band listened back at the finished product and they were proud. It was their first studio experience as a band and they all felt it really captured the essence of what the band was about. After the demo was put on tape, new manager Lindy Getz started shopping it around record labels. Lindy found that most labels didn't want anything to do with the Chili Peppers. They were just too weird. But he continued taking meetings with any label that would listen to him. 
The record company Enigma, a subsidiary of EMI, had actually been interested in the band before they heard the demo tape. They had sent some representatives to see the band perform around LA a little bit before. They liked what they saw, and just like Lindy, saw how well the crowds were reacting to the Chili Peppers for their live shows. Especially in those early days, the band was a tried-and-true live band. And in November of 1983, exactly six months to the date of the band's first show at the Rhythm Lounge, that live sound was enough to convince EMI to sign them to a seven-album, seven-year deal. Now, six months old is super young for a band to already have a manager, a demo tape, a record deal, and a solid following in their home turf around L.A., Things were moving fast, but it's also important to remember that they had all been high school pals for a long time. I think part of the magic of the band was that solid friendship, that brotherhood that they displayed on stage. And I think that probably led to Flea making a decision at that time to quit the other band he was in, Fear. I mean, it must have been hard for how big of a fan he was of that band and how well established they were. But it came to a head after the other guys in Fear saw the momentum the Chili Peppers were getting. They started asking Flea where his loyalty was. Are you going to be with them or with us? Going into the Chili Peppers, Flea thought he could do both. But as soon as Fear started asking questions like that, he made the decision that he'd much rather be in a band that he started with three of the best friends he has and definitely not playing second fiddle as he probably was in Fear. Flea's tenure with Fear didn't even last a year, but I think he probably learned a lot of lessons that helped him in the Red Hot Chili Peppers later on. Flea loved Fear, loved that punk rock, but his bass playing at this point was already much more influenced by funk music. More groove, more melody, and noodling around the fretboard. It's what made Flea unique, combining that funk influence with the punk rock intensity. No one was really doing it, and that just wasn't Fear's sound, which was more of an in-your-face hardcore band. Everything was falling into place for Anthony, Flea, Hallel, and Jack. They were all super close, they were all playing music they loved, getting great reviews, and it looked like the sky was the limit, almost as if it were too good to be true. And that's when reality came knocking and the band saw its first taste of adversity. Like everything going their way was almost too good to be true. It was as the Chili Peppers signed this new record deal that Hillel and Jack dropped a bombshell on Anthony and Flea. The other band they were in, formerly Anthem but now called What Is This, just so happened to be offered a record contract as well, and in it had stipulations for the members to not be in any other bands. Hillel and Jack must have thought that the other band was a little more serious, more secure, so they decided to stick with the other band instead, now leaving the Red Hot Chili Peppers without a guitarist and a drummer before going into the studio to record their first album. I guess you can't really blame them. What Is This was a band more in the mainstream at the time, more rock-oriented and less put socks on her dicks and combined funk and punk rock. Who would have thought that a band like the Chili Peppers had any longevity in them at all? Jack Irons would later say that it came down to loyalty and that they had been in Anthem and What Is This since their high school days, whereas the Chili Peppers were only six months old. Anthony wrote in Scar Tissue about the emotions he felt when he heard the news, writing, quote, I was speechless and in shock, feeling like a piano had fallen on my heart. I stumbled off the couch and started to cry. This couldn't be possible. 
We had invented something as a band. We had created this thing that the world must hear about. And all of a sudden, it was like we were aborting a baby at six months. Flea was sitting there going, this is fucked up. This is fucked up. Our sound was based on the drumming of Jack Irons and the guitar playing of Halel Slovak. It wasn't like these guys were incidental. They made up our vibe. We were kids from high school. We were a team. Anthony and Flea wallowed in their sadness for a little while after, even contemplating ending the band, but it was Flea who soon got the idea that all they really needed was replacements. Flea knew a lot of other musicians from his time in fear and the circles he ran with. The Chili Peppers still had Anthony and Flea, they had the songs, and they had the record contract. They just needed a guitarist and a drummer. They were understandably a little depressed by their situation, but they needed to find these new guys quick because their new record company wanted the band to get in the studio and record their first album as soon as possible, get it done while they're new and hot. The record label gave them two months to recruit and regroup. In that time, Anthony and Flea put the word out that they were in need of a guitarist and drummer. The first hire was a drummer by the name of Cliff Martinez, coming from a band called The Weirdos. Him and Flea met in the music scene and had become friends. Flea even offered him the gig without an audition. For guitar, the band auditioned more than a dozen guys to fill Hillel's former role, and they eventually settled on someone coming from the new wave music scene of the late 70s and early 80s, and that was a guy by the name of Jack Sherman. Anthony Flea, and especially the record label, were very excited to have a full-fledged band now, but it was quickly pretty obvious that at least Sherman wasn't a good fit. The Chili Peppers were known as a wild, high-energy, crazy live band, and Anthony and Flea wanted to capture that on the record, but their new guitarist, Jack Sherman, had a different idea on musical direction, and it didn't quite fit the loose punk rock energy that Hillel brought to the table. Anthony would later say that Hillel would know if he had a good night if there was blood on his guitar, while here was this other guy spraying lubricating mist on his fretboard. To give those new guys a break, I mean, they weren't really coming into an ideal situation themselves. Hillel and Jack fit into a brotherhood with Anthony and Flea that was seven years in the making, stemming back from their high school days at Fairfax. You don't just recapture that energy by way of auditions for two months. The band's mission statement at that time was to be complete and utter perpetrators of hardcore, bone-crunching mayhem, sex things from heaven. The new guys, Cliff and Jack, had that explained to them early on, and I think that's when they both kind of knew that it was going to be a tough road ahead. Now that the new guys were in the band, though, it was time to get ready to make a record. The new Red Hot Chili Peppers lineup played a few shows in an attempt to get some chemistry going before they hit the studio, and they also set out to get a producer for the album. It seemed like a perfect fit going in. Anthony and Flea were huge fans of this band called Gang of Four. Gang of Four played a style of music that merged danceable rhythms with hard-edged, uncompromising rock and roll. They were more of an underground band from England, and after seeing a little commercial success with their first two albums, they folded by the time 1984 rolled around. Andy Gill was the guitarist in that band and was now looking for work, and it just so happened that a young up-and-coming band had just been signed to the same label Gang of Four was on, and were now looking for a producer. Going into the recording process, the Chili Peppers couldn't be more excited for Andy Gill to be producing their debut record, but just as it would for new guitarist Jack Sherman, 
things turned sour very quickly for both sides. The Chili Peppers looked up to Gil so much and considered the first two Gang of Four records he helped make as some of the all-time great rock records. But Gil was veering away from that style. He was now into what was a state-of-the-art sound at the time, drum machines and slick pop and rhythm sounds, even going so far as to dismiss those first two Gang of Four records he had. He didn't really mesh with the Chili Peppers' spontaneity and high energy, and the sound they were going for with their first record, something to capture the anarchy and urgency they had in their live show. Gil would later say in an interview, quote, they at that point in time were doing their own kind of funky semi-wrapped stuff, and they also had these very fast, short punk rock songs. At that time, there were a lot of other bands doing that super fast music all over in two minutes. I thought that was not interesting. Another factor that led to tensions between the band and Gill was the fact that the Chili Peppers were pretty much studio novices. Flea would later say that they had no clue what they were doing in a big fancy recording studio making a big fancy record. And they went in it not really knowing what the role of a producer was either, and were taken aback when Gill tried inserting his input into their creative process. Also, Gil had seen the Chili Peppers live and wanted them to focus more on their slower and funkier songs, like Green Heaven and True Men Don't Kill Coyotes, rather than the thrashy songs like Police Helicopter. It confused the Chili Peppers, because at their shows, the crowd seemed to respond better the faster they played. To be fair to Gil, the Chili Peppers weren't really treating him all that great either, especially Anthony and Flea. They would insult him on the regular and take advantage of his mild-mannered demeanor. Anthony and Flea would sometimes lean over the recording console with their faces pressed right up against Gil's and scream insults at him. But Gil would just stay calm and focus on the work. It was a struggle from the get-go, and it also wasn't just the producer that wasn't meshing with Anthony and Flea. New guitarist Jack Sherman started siding with Gil on most of the arguments they would have in terms of ideas for their sound. It would drive Anthony and Flea insane, who were really on an all-out war over the sound of this album against their producer. Sherman also didn't like punk music, and punk bands like The Germs and Black Flag were gods to Anthony and Flea at the time. Plus, as technically sound as Sherman was on guitar, he had none of the experimental and psychedelic raw spirit Hillel had in his guitar playing. All in all, it was a tough go for the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the recording of their debut album, and the sales reflected that. Flea would later say that instead of ending up with a record that was hard-edged funk or namby-pamby pop funk, they ended up with a record in between. The record didn't reflect what made the Red Hot Chili Peppers great at that time, and that was their live energy. Anthony had all these lyrics about sex and living around LA, Flea had all these crazy unique bass lines, but it just didn't gel with their more traditional new members and producer. Anthony and Flea wanted a raw, heavy punk funk album, but they were so young, naive, and new at this whole band experience and recording in the studio that they didn't know how to properly achieve it and mesh with these new characters in that experience. The record was self-titled The Red Hot Chili Peppers and sold about 75,000 copies by the end of 1984, deeming it a failure from the eyes of the record company. It's crazy to think because nowadays, if a record sold that much, it would be huge. Flea later said in an interview with Rolling Stone, 
Quote, if we'd had that original lineup on the first record, I think we would have been a lot more popular a lot sooner. We would have gotten the real thing, hardcore, down on record. We were so explosive at that time, and it's not an explosive record. Despite the poor record sales, the band's reputation of their live shows was still very positive, and the Chili Peppers started noticing more people out at their shows to promote the album. They started getting plays around the United States on college radio with the help of the single True Men Don't Kill Coyotes. And the fact that they kept relentlessly touring across America in their van and put on such a great and unique live show, they still got lots of local press in every area they went. Just not quite MTV national type press yet. But the record never really took off, and I think the band learned a lot from that experience, especially for Anthony and Flea. I don't think you can call it an outright failure altogether. They got their first taste of studio experience and really got to understand that process and what the role of a producer really is. The creative aspect of the record, battling with Gil over the sound and everything, early cemented in the heads of Anthony and Flea the sound they were actually wanting and what they would find with later records, that punk-funk fusion. Anthony's hard rapping style was ahead of its time, and I think he learned, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, that he needed to mix in more melody and actual singing to really have an impactful record. They came out of that album knowing that it was their live sound and energy in concert that made them so appealing. They knew that in order to record a good album, they weren't going to be able to get any old guitar player or drummer for the band. They needed like-minded people who not only had a lot of talent, but who shared the same energy and attitude. After the record was released, the Chili Peppers went on tour to promote it, and that's when it was made obvious that Sherman was not a good fit in the band. The Chili Peppers were booked to play 60 shows in 64 days, all piled into a blue Chevy van, and the guys were getting on Sherman's nerves, and vice versa, especially Anthony. Anthony would take pride in being a wild maniac on stage, dancing and kicking, and would literally make a point in trying to hurt himself. Sherman couldn't stand it, and tried taping off his own section where Anthony couldn't enter on, in on stage. At one point, Sherman quit the band during a sound check because Anthony accidentally kicked him, but their manager, Lindy, was able to smooth it out and convince Sherman to at least finish the end of the tour. Before Sherman could quit, though, he was fired from the band after the tour in early 1985. Anthony and Flea had been talking with Hillel a lot, trying to persuade him to come back into the band, and as soon as he hinted that he might do it, Anthony and Flea axed Sherman. It was really the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Sherman's time with the band. One aspect of the history of the Red Hot Chili Peppers that sort of defined them is their drug use. And it was around this time, the recording process of their first album and tour right after, that drugs started to become an issue. Anthony and Flea, along with Hillel, had been like wild men up to this point, not really paying much attention to the negative aspects of all the drugs they were taking. It all started in high school, and the three of them were really up for anything, trying out acid, heroin, coke, uppers, downers, booze, whatever. Anthony usually led the way on drug experimentation, being the first guy in the band to shoot up, first injecting cocaine when they were 16 or 17 years old. And it all seemed fun for them. It didn't really cause too much damage in their lives until about the time the Chili Peppers were getting a little more serious and recording their first album. 
Anthony would actually disappear for two or three days at a time, and no one really questioned it because there were so many other things to take care of during those sessions other than just the singing. As Anthony was diving deeper into drug addiction during the recording process, especially heroin, Flea had a bit of a revelation. He really got into this DC punk band called Minor Threat, and they had a song called Straight Edge, which was written as an anti-drug song. Flea was so demoralized and depressed from all the drugs that they had been doing that he tore the lyrics of that song out of a magazine he had read, shaved his head, and tried to embrace this not-getting-high philosophy. It didn't stick, but Anthony says it was partly the reason it stopped Flea from sinking further down that dark rabbit hole of drug addiction, where for Anthony and Hillel, it would only get worse. Flea even tried giving Anthony some tough love after one of Anthony's incidents where he went AWOL and missed rehearsals for a number of days. Flea went to Anthony's place, woke Anthony up after one of his drug binges on China White Heroin, and told him that he could not do this with him anymore, and that he needed to quit the band. Anthony wrote about it in Scar Tissue, writing, quote, I thought he'd say, dude, you're a mess. We gotta talk about you not getting so high anymore. But when he said he had to quit the band, all of my cells reverberated and I bolted up. That was the first taste of the fact that I could be destroying the dream we had created of this amazing funk band that was all about dancing and energy and sex. I wanted to be in that band with Flea more than anything, but how could I communicate that to him? Then it popped into my mind, Flea, you can't quit, I pleaded. I'm going to be the James Brown of the 80s. How could he argue with that? In the book An Oral Visual History, Flea mentioned that considering all the drug use and how young and immature they were at the time, it was probably better long term that their first record wasn't a huge success, and maybe it was a blessing in disguise, writing, quote, Anthony said many years later, if that record would have been great, we would never be together today. He's dead right. We never would have survived this long, and because of it, we've grown over time. Flea never ended up quitting the band because of Anthony's drug use. He stuck it out and put up with it, but it was only going to get worse. But the Red Hot Chili Peppers wouldn't be where they are today without that tragic part of their history. For better and for worse as they would soon find out with their friend, Hillel. By the end of their first tour, the Chili Peppers needed a guitar player again. Sherman was out of the band, and lucky for them, Hillel's hints at wanting to come back into the Chili Peppers came true, and he rejoined. Anthony and Flea were obviously ecstatic. What is this the band Hillel and Jack Irons left the Chili Peppers for, didn't find the success they thought their new band would get, and so that's what made it easier for Hillel to come back. But it would be a while yet before Jack rejoined the band, as they still had Cliff Martinez on drums. They immediately started writing songs for what would become their next album, and the creative chemistry was back. They were excited over the prospect of recording a new album. Hillel had come back into the band a new guitar player. Better chops, less obviously influenced by bands like Kiss, and more coming into his own style of smooth and fluid funk. Coming off their disappointing first album, they knew they needed to change things up a lot, and that they were going to need a new studio and a new producer. Andy Gill was not going to cut it, and so the band and the record company, EMI, started talks on the details of their next album. If former guitarist Jack Sherman left any positive imprint on Anthony and Flea, it would be introducing them to a 70s psychedelic funk band 
by the name of Parliament Funkadelic, also known as Parliament, the Parliament's Funkadelic or P-Funk. From the moment Sherman showed Anthony and Flea what this band was about, they fell in love, and especially their frontman, George Clinton. It wasn't just the great funk music they created, but this funky, free-for-all, sexy, out-of-this-world lifestyle they represented that got Anthony and Flea hooked. For example, in their live shows, P-Funk would arrive on something called The Mothership and be dressed in these weird, wild costumes, combining science fiction with the 60s acid culture. So when it came down for the Red Hot Chili Peppers to find a producer, they took a shot in the dark and asked the record company EMI if they could get P-Funk's frontman, George Clinton. The stars aligned for the Chili Peppers and Clinton, as Clinton at this point was not fronting his band full-time. He was in the midst of a ton of legal issues and was running low on money, and his reputation hadn't been kickstarted yet by the rise of hip-hop. Clinton said yes to EMI and agreed after listening to a bunch of the demos for their new songs. Instead of the conventional way to record an album, though, Clinton wanted to spend some time living and writing with the band on his farm in Michigan beforehand. The members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers couldn't be more excited. They were going to get to live with one of their musical heroes and have him imprint his stamp on their new album. With Hillel back in the band once again, things were looking good in the Chili Pepper camp. The band went out to Michigan with about 70% of their songs finished. They moved into Clinton's country house outside of Detroit for the first week and really got to know him and develop some chemistry. They then moved into their own place for the remainder of their recording time and would commute to an old Motown-era studio in downtown Detroit. Creatively, things went pretty smooth, but both the members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as well as George Clinton, were battling their demons in the case of drugs. Clinton was really into cocaine, and they shared that love together almost from start to finish for the recording process. Anthony was actually getting heavier into heroin beforehand, but quit cold turkey to record the album. He was working with one of his musical heroes in Clinton and didn't want the recording process to become derailed from his addiction to heroin. Instead, Anthony replaced heroin with cocaine after his heroin withdrawals and dope sickness got too bad, something Anthony experienced for the first time. There was so much cocaine going around for the sessions that it was pretty hard not to take part. There's one story during the recording where Clinton's cocaine dealer, a Middle Eastern guy by the name of Louie, was coming by regularly but wasn't getting paid. Clinton ran into some hard times financially by the mid-80s, maybe part of the reason he agreed to take on this producing job of four unknown white funk-playing kids from Los Angeles. At one point, this Louie character came by the studio with a couple of henchmen to ensure the cocaine payments that he had been owed would come through. Anthony wrote about it in his book, Scar Tissue, writing, quote, George never blinked an eye because he had a plan. He knew Louis was fascinated by the music business, so he intuited that making Louis a part of the whole process would ensure a steady flow of coke. Finally, George promised Louis that he could make his vocal debut on the album. I was thinking, okay, I trust George. I know that everything's happening for a reason here, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let this motherfucker on my record. This shit is sacred. George told me, don't worry, everyone will be happy. He'll be on the record and you will not mind. George was right. At the very beginning of Yertle the Turtle, 
you hear a weird out-of-context voice come in and say, look at that turtle go, bro. And then the song goes into a syncopated funk beat. That was Louis' debut, and that was what made him happy enough not to hurt somebody. The longer the session went on, the more regularly he would show up with a blow because he was wanting his 15 minutes in the damn spotlight. The whole recording process with George was a big drug binge. The Red Hot Chili Peppers were still young and hadn't really seen the dark side of drug addiction yet. Plus, it's hard to steer away when one of your heroes, George Clinton, is doing it alongside you the whole time. Even though the recording sessions went into the wee hours of the morning and it was a constant party scene, the band actually performed quite well under the circumstances and were proud of the work they accomplished. The Chili Peppers got along great with George and loved his relaxed style of producing that allowed them more to be themselves. Quite a bit different from the style of their first producer, Andy Gill, whose style was more towards getting a hit song. In an interview right after the album was done, Flea said, quote, George was a fifth member of the band when we recorded the album, no doubt about it, but he didn't do anything we wouldn't have done completely on our own. He made it easy for us to do a lot of things, because he had access to the James Brown horn section, and he understood us. But if we'd had our way, the first album would have sounded like this too. This album, later named Freaky Styly, is about the closest album the Chili Peppers ever got to straight funk. It had most of the same funky bass lines that was featured on the first album, but great funky riffs, scratchy rhythm guitar, and a horn section that has James Brown's name all over it. They decided to name it Freaky Styly after the phrase the band members made up at the time to describe anything cool. Freaky Styly was released in August of 1985, and surprisingly to the Chili Peppers, actually didn't do that much more better than their first album commercially, and just didn't have any commercial hits, and the lyrics and the heaviness of the songs were indication that commercial success wasn't necessarily top of mind for the Chili Peppers anyway. There were songs on Freaky Styly like Catholic School Girls Rule that obviously weren't meant for mass public consumption. Anthony wrote the lyrics to it after one backstage experience on tour in New Orleans, where he hooked up with a Catholic schoolgirl only to find out she was only 14 years old. They made a music video for the song, but it only got played on Playboy TV because of a nude scene and a controversial scene with Anthony singing from a cross. Anthony writes in his book Scar Tissue that the record company, EMI, didn't help matters when it came to selling the record either. He said some execs had come out to Detroit to hear the record, and instead of saying they were going to be huge, they just said, well, we'll see what we can do with this. He says EMI at the time was more focused on finding the next band like Roxette, rather than having the awareness to take something different and original, recognize its worth, and introduce it to the world. Flea took a much humbler approach years later in 2003, writing in the liner notes for the remastered version of Freaky Styly, writing, quote, I know the music on this record was just way too obscure to ever be popular in a mainstream kind of way, but to me it really holds its own as a definitive and substantial musical statement. More than any other record we've made, it falls into the category of too funky for white radio too punk rockin' for black. Of course, the songs were very far away from any pop format. I realized it is slash was not just the racial segregation at radio that precluded it from being a popular record. 
By critics, though, Freaky Styley was received much better and a huge improvement to their self-titled debut album. Critics pointed to the more relaxed and at-ease-sounding record with better production than their self-titled debut, some saying it was pure funk and making no bones about it, playing with a lack of self-consciousness on their quirky songs, something they lacked on their first record. George Clinton really introduced them to how powerful background vocals could be and how they're arranged. He also gave Anthony more confidence in his singing voice for the songs he sang melodically, rather than just straight rapping. Songs like the Sly and the Family Stone cover of If You Want Me To Stay, as well as the Meters cover of Africa, where they changed the lyrics and named the song Hollywood. George would have a mic set up inside his own booth while Anthony would record in the other booth, and George would set Anthony at ease, singing along, sending up shout-outs, telling him he had it in the bag, and that he knew what Anthony was capable of. Most of the songs still featured Anthony's main singing of the time, rapping and screaming super fast and super loud, but it was those little flashes of his singing voice that showed what he was capable of and what he would start to do on later albums. After releasing the album in August of 1985, the Red Hot Chili Peppers had a bit of downtime playing odd shows here and there around LA before it was time to go on tour again. It was these downtimes where the dark side of drug addiction would really make its appearance for Anthony and Hillel. It seemed to be more fun and relaxed while doing drugs with George Clinton in the studio, but when they got home, Anthony and Hillel would ramp up their heroin injection use. Anthony seemed to be doing a little bit better than Hillel, and in his book Scar Tissue, he wrote about the noticeable dark change he saw in his friend at around this time in their lives, writing, quote, Both Hillel and I were strung out, but for the first time, I noticed that he wasn't doing so well. He seemed weak, and while I was able to bounce right back from a run, he didn't seem to have that Israeli fire stoking like he always had in the past. It had become evident that when we started our usual on-tour wrestling diversion, Hillel and I had teamed up. I was his manager, and he was set to wrestle Flea. Even though Flea was real solid, Hillel was bigger. He had massive tree trunk legs like a tall pan. We had a two-week build-up to this match, and when they wrestled in a hotel room one night, Flea destroyed him, and as long as it takes, to grab somebody and hurl him to the ground and pin him mercilessly to his death. Ten seconds. I could tell that Hillel had no inner core of strength. He had been robbed by his addiction of the life force, that allows you to at least defend yourself. It was a sad moment. Despite the drug troubles, the band set off on tour on what would be another grueling one. The band would later nickname this tour the Infinity Tour because it had so many dates and had a crazy travel schedule. They toured from October 1985 until March 1986, virtually nonstop, and even went across the pond for the first time to tour Europe. By the time the tour was done, they had gone back to LA to prepare for their next album, but Anthony had seemed to slip deeper into his drug addiction, and it was at the expense of the band. He was frequently late, lacked motivation for any creativity, and actually at one point fell asleep during a rehearsal. The band was trying to prepare for another album. They all knew that their album sales didn't reflect the full potential of the band. They were selling out 1,000-person capacity shows at certain points, and they knew they had to buckle down and record an album that did reflect the power of their live shows. But Anthony was in his own dark world of drugs and would go missing for days on end while the rest of the band was hard at work at the rehearsals. Hillel would at least show up and be able to contribute, even though his need for smack at the time was just as strong. 
Writing in his diary one night during this period, Hillel understood that he was going down a dark path with heroin and could see it firsthand with Anthony as well. Writing, quote, Fuck drugs. Music is my destiny. I want to get into this album more than anything. It's my savior. I pray that Anthony returns to cosmic soulness and a new love and respect will happen. It was getting to a point now with Anthony where he wouldn't show up to rehearsals for days on end, and when he did, his stays were very short and contributions very limited. The band had actually recorded instrumental tracks for demos, and when it came time for Anthony to come in with lyrics and melodies, he would instead show up with lyrics for a song the band had cut a while before and shelved because it was mediocre. Anthony wrote about this time in his book Scar Tissue, writing, quote, I was withering away mentally, spiritually, physically, creatively. Everything was fading out. Sometimes doing heroin was nice and dreamy and euphoric and carefree, almost romantic feeling. In reality, I was dying. I couldn't see that from being so deep in my own forest. It was so bad that the band finally came together and decided that they all had enough. They fired Anthony and kicked him out of the band. They told him that he needed treatment and some help and to focus on other things rather than the band. The truth was, in a weird way, Anthony was actually relieved. He now had zero responsibilities and could focus all his time on getting that next fix. Obviously, it went from worse to worse for Anthony at this time, and now he would spend all his time in seedy neighborhoods hustling for drugs and money. It was barely a week after Anthony had been out of the band when it was announced that the Chili Peppers were being nominated by the LA Weekly newspaper for LA Band of the Year. A few nights later, Anthony happened to be hustling drugs in the same area of town where the awards were being held, so he thought he'd stumble in and check it out. He got inside and watched the ceremony from a distance and saw his former bandmates sitting front row. And almost as soon as he entered, it was then announced that the Chili Peppers had actually won. They won LA Band of the Year, and the three other members jumped on stage, gave a speech, but didn't even mention Anthony's name once. No mention of the singer and best friend they had shared the last three years with, and it broke Anthony's heart. It was a bit of a revelation for Anthony that he did in fact need some help, and right after, while in a euphoric heroin high, he phoned his mom, who was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and told her that he was addicted to heroin, and that he wanted to fly to Michigan to be checked into a rehab center. Anthony's mom bought him a plane ticket, and as soon as he landed, was checked into a Salvation Army rehab center. It was not easy for Anthony. He had to go cold turkey again, and this time he knew what he was in for. But entering a rehab for the first time, he got this new experience of being around similar drug addicts, all in there with the same goal of getting sober. He had mocked sobriety in the past, but being in these meetings every day with people who were just like him... Hearing the messed up stories they would tell and their honest reflections on being sober, or at least attempting to be, really gave Anthony some optimism that he could do this too. He learned that alcoholism and drug addiction were bona fide illnesses, and that his crazy childhood running around with his dad and going to parties and selling drugs and living this wild lifestyle from the age of 11 had really set him up for failure when it came to quitting drugs. But he now had the psychological relief of discovering what's wrong with him and why he was trying to medicate himself since he was old enough to find medicine. Anthony stayed at the rehab center for 20 days. It was successful, and at the age of 24, for the first time since he was 11, he was totally clean and sober. It was during this time that the rest of the Chili Peppers figured out that they couldn't just replace a guy like Anthony as their frontman. 
He had so much charisma and was such a strong presence. They attempted to replace him, but it obviously didn't work. Anthony was as much a part of the Red Hot Chili Peppers as anybody, and that became evident to the rest of the guys. It wasn't long before Anthony was phoning Flea up from that Michigan rehab center just to check in on how his best friend was doing. Anthony was at peace with not being in the band and was just excited to tell Flea about his newfound sobriety and how much it had revitalized his life. It was during one of those calls that Flea finally gave in and asked Anthony if he'd be willing to play a few songs with the band again, just to see how it would feel. Anthony was surprised by it, but replied by saying there would be nothing that he'd rather do. Anthony flew back to LA, jammed with the band again, and was quickly back in the mix. I think that sums up the essence of the Red Hot Chili Peppers right there. The brotherhood that Anthony and Flea had and still have to this day, it has kept the band going through thick and thin and through those tough times. At that point, they had been best friends for almost a decade. They did everything together. They lived together. They had been the two constant presences in this band throughout the years up to this point. And I think Flea knew that there would be no Red Hot Chili Peppers without Anthony as the singer. And I think Flea, as well as the rest of the band, now respected Anthony a lot more because of the work he put in to get sober. Anthony came back to LA with a new outlook on life. He found sobriety and how positive a force it could be. Ultimately, he wouldn't stay sober for very long. Within two months of leaving that Michigan rehab center, he was shooting heroin and cocaine again, but it was different this time. He knew there was a way out of that madness if he wanted it and if he was willing to put the work in. As he said in his book, Scar Tissue, it was a pivotal point in his life. He'd been given the tools, he just didn't want to use them yet. Before the end of the tour to promote the Freaky Styley album, the so-called Infinity Tour, drummer Cliff Martinez had realized that he had had enough of the crazy schedule and hard partying of the band, but he just didn't have the heart to actually quit on the guys. Anthony and Flea started to slowly sense that he didn't want to continue, and eventually let him go after the tour and fired him from the band. It went a lot smoother than Jack Sherman's firing, even though Cliff put up some resistance when receiving the news. But after the initial shock of being fired wore off, Cliff admitted it himself that he had lost enthusiasm and wasn't giving the Chili Peppers his all anymore. Lucky for the band, former drummer and old Fairfax high pal, Jack Irons, was looking for a band again. His other band, What Is This, was not doing so well, and Jack had quit. It all seemed to come at a perfect time, and it was a no-brainer to have Jack return to reunite the original Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was the first time back together since before they recorded the first album in 1983, and maybe more importantly, it reunited four high school friends whose personalities meshed really well. The Fairfax Four were all back together, and it was now time to get back in the studio and record a real Red Hot Chili Peppers album. By late 1986, the Chili Peppers were regarded as a successful touring band, but a disappointment in the studio. Despite fitting in great with producer George Clinton, Freaky Styley failed to make any more commercial impact than their first record. EMI had recouped their small investment in the band, but it wasn't enough to make the Chili Peppers a top priority and to take them seriously. 
and they moved the band to a more specialized EMI label, signaling to the band that they weren't expecting much from the Chili Peppers anymore, and it kind of pissed off the band. The Chili Peppers knew they needed to start selling more records, they just needed to find a way to get their true live sound on tape. That was the goal in early 1987, along with manager Lindy Getz, as they searched for a new producer for their next album. The Chili Peppers were looking at this young guy out of New York who was red hot and who had made his mark in the hip-hop scene. He was the co-founder of Def Jam Records and saw success bridging the gap between hip-hop and rock with Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. His name was Rick Rubin. A meeting was set up at a rehearsal room as the Chili Peppers were working on getting songs together for their third album, but the meeting didn't go so well. In an interview later, Rubin looked back at running into the Chili Peppers during this time, saying, quote, I went to a rehearsal and it was a bad vibe and I didn't know what was going on, but I knew this wasn't anything I wanted to be a part of. It turns out they were all on a lot of drugs and I hadn't really been around that, but there was a really uncomfortable feeling in the room and you could see that the guys in the band didn't trust each other, and that doesn't make really for great music. Anthony later said in a magazine interview, quote, It was a really dysfunctional time for us, and we were fighting and kind of toxic looking. I think we scared the shit out of him because he said, Ah, let's go now. Ruben would ultimately decline the opportunity to produce the album. The band eventually settled for someone totally different than the last two producers they had. They went with a guy by the name of Michael Beinhorn, a professional type of producer rather than an established musician like Andy Gill or George Clinton. He was young and made his name by producing Herbie Hancock, but had recently come off a stretch of unsuccessful albums at other labels. EMI introduced Beinhorn to the Chili Peppers, and he convinced the band to go with him by pitching the Chili Peppers on wanting the same thing they wanted, someone to capture their live explosiveness on record. Beinhorn did his homework going into producing their next record, and he formulated a clear strategy that outlined exactly what the band, the album, and the label for that matter needed and what the previous two albums failed to do, and that was capture the intensity and madness of their live shows. Beinhorn also picked apart the previous albums to isolate the mistakes they should avoid and the elements worth retaining. He thought the key problem with both of those albums was the inconsistency in the performances and the songwriting. And so he laid all of this out to the guys in the band, gave them a direction, and really let them do what they usually do before recording an album. Flesh the songs out in a rehearsal room by jamming and improvising, messing around, and seeing what comes out. What Beinhorn didn't realize early on with the band was just how serious drug addiction was affecting the band, coming from Anthony and Hillel, and how that would affect the recording process. The band decided to record in the basement of the Capitol Records building in Hollywood, a historically important studio where legendary artists like Frank Sinatra, the Beach Boys, and Louis Armstrong had recorded it. It's when they started recording that the drug issues started getting out of control again. Going in, it seemed Anthony was going to be different this time around. He had talked about all this new lease on life he had from his stint at rehab, but when push came to shove, it was more of the same. He was contributing very well creatively in the eyes of the other band members, but he would still disappear for days on end with no one knowing where he was. He would be sober for a special amount of days, like 50 for example, and congratulate himself by calling the dope dealer. Hillel's heroin use was ramping up as well, although Hillel seemed better at not letting his drug addiction affect the band as much. Despite the struggles with drug addiction, the band really enjoyed the recording of the album. 
I think having Jack Irons back in the band for the songwriting process reignited a creative spark within the band. They wrote all the songs at the rehearsal studio, and producer Michael Beinhorn encouraged the band to step outside their boundaries a little bit and experiment with different sounds. Flea would later say that this album was probably the most straight-up rockingest album they ever made. Beinhorn really pushed the guys towards a heavy sound, big football rally-like chants in the choruses, and big-sounding drums. This is the album where Anthony started taking more seriously a melodic style of singing instead of just straight rapping. In fact, one of the album's singles, Behind the Sun, is a song way out of left field compared to their earlier stuff, where it's a slower tempo, Anthony sings a great melody, and Hillel even plays a sitar. Beinhorn worked with Anthony a lot on this song, getting the melody just right that sits on top of this unusual but very cool riff from Hillel. This is the first album where we see Anthony develop some confidence in singing in a more traditional style, but it took a lot of convincing and encouragement from the producer. Anthony didn't want their songs to sound sappy and thought that melody would soften their songs up too much. In between some of Anthony's vocal takes, Hillel would encourage this new style as well, sometimes running around the studio yelling, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever done. This steered the Chili Peppers in a new direction for future albums, and for Blood Sugar Sex Magic, where Anthony started singing ballads for the first time. I don't think you get an Under the Bridge or a Soul to Squeeze without a song like Behind the Sun first. Overall, Anthony's lyrics were mostly about much of the same stuff he was singing about in their first two albums. He sings very openly about his love for women and sex and songs like Special Secret Song Inside, which was originally called Party on Your Pussy, before their record label made them change the title. It didn't help their reputation in the eyes of critics who slammed them for being sexist or misogynists, but the Chili Peppers always responded with those claims in interviews by saying they love women that the lyrics are about their endearment toward women, who they treat as equals, and that reputation of sexism from critics is very shallow. Anthony wrote a lot about his love of his friends on this album as well, just like on previous albums. It's the feature in the song that the Chili Peppers still play to this day, maybe the only song from their first three albums that they still play at live shows regularly, and it's actually their sixth most performed song to date. The song is called Me and My Friends, and Anthony wrote it about his love for a number of his pals at the time, but mainly about Flea, Jack, and Hillel, but especially for Hillel. It's also one of the songs that feature the chanting chorus sound that defines this record a little bit. Another highlight off the album was the song Organic Anti-Beatbox Band. It was a song that captured that era of the Chili Peppers very well. Hard rapping from Anthony, big chants in the chorus, simple big drums, funky slap bass, and heavy riff guitar. The lyrics also summed up the band's feeling on the trends in music at the time and why they were disappointed in their first two albums. The song is a bit like a band manifesto, with Anthony explaining who they are, where they come from, and what they're all about. The phrase organic anti-beatbox band sums up how the Chili Peppers took pride in building songs from raw jams organically and their anti-technology feeling towards the music industry. Not surprising considering the big drum machine sounds they hated in their first two albums. Flea would describe this attitude they had on modern music during an interview at that time, saying, quote, It's just too clean. Funk should be dirty music. It's not pristine. It's got to have that dirty, grungy feel. Every time I play a gig, they play this song called Pump Up the Volume. That's not funk, man. That's a bunch of sequencers jacking off for androids. It's not for people who like to shake their ass and get down. 
Although the band never admitted it, critics saw Organic Anti-Beatbox Band as a response from the Chili Peppers to their rivals in rock hip-hop, the Beastie Boys. They had just come out with a huge hit in their song, Fight for Your Right to Party, which has a very distinct drum machine sound. Uplift Mofo Party Plan, as they would later name this new album, featured the first piece of lyrical content of what would become some of the biggest Red Hot Chili Peppers songs, and that was about the negatives of drug addiction. At the time when Anthony came out of that rehab in Michigan, he came out of it with this brand new revelation of looking at sobriety in a positive light. He'd gotten that call from Flea that they would like to jam with him again, that he might be able to get back into the band, and so he was riding this new wave of enthusiasm for his new life. On the plane ride back to LA, he decided to write a song about his experience of going to meetings, getting clean, and winning this battle of addiction, and he titled this song Fight Like a Brave, which would end up being the first single released from the record. In the song, he wrote, If you're sick and sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you're sick of all the bullshit and you're sick of all the lies, it's better late than never to set a set it straight. You know the lie is dead, so give yourself a break. Get it through your head, get it off your chest, get it out your arm because it's time to start fresh. You want to stop dying the life you could be living. I'm here to tell a story, but I'm also here to listen. No, I'm not your preacher and I'm not your physician. I'm just trying to reach you. I'm a rebel with a mission. Fight like a brave. Don't be a slave. No one could tell you you've got to be afraid. Anthony admitted in his book, Scar Tissue, that the lyrics seem naive now looking back on it, especially since he went back to drugs within two months of writing those words down. But he said it reflected exactly where he was at that point in his life, and it would serve as the start of a whole new side of lyrical content we'd see from Anthony, and what would help propel the Chili Peppers away from how the music industry saw them, as the socks on Cox guys writing obnoxious party songs about sex, and instead to the sensitive side that would launch them into superstardom. With songs like Organic Anti-Beatbox Band and Party on Your Pussy, Uplift Mofo Party Plan continue to prove a major attraction to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the attraction that has helped keep them relevant until today. And that was their authenticity. They weren't trying to be anyone else. They weren't trying to find the flavor of the week and their overall sound to sell a few extra records. They remained true to themselves, and it sums up the band as a whole. Years before it became such a cliché, the Chili Peppers were speaking out against the overuse of technology and music, and they were going to sing about what they know and love, their friends, their crazy antics, and their love of woman and sex, even if the music industry was being hit with censorship and court battles from high-profile politicians over lyrical content. The album took a long eight months to record, largely in part due to Anthony's drug use and his unreliability to show up, but also because Beinhorn was very picky in particular on getting the right takes nailed down. The album was released on September 29, 1987, and for the first time, the Red Hot Chili Peppers cracked the top 200 albums list, landing at 148. It started to look like all the hard work was paying off and that the record sales might reflect how popular they really were for their live shows. Despite the struggles with partying and drug addiction they had the last time they toured to promote an album, they planned another very extensive tour to promote Uplift Mofo Party Plan. It was successful off the hop and the band started noticing more fans coming out to their shows. In an interview years later, Anthony looked back on the optimism they had during this period of the band's history saying, quote, I remember actually feeling a change taking place, not just in the amount of people showing up at the gigs, but the intensity of the fan base.
I think the early stages of touring can be pretty easy for a band to overcome. A lot of excitement has got to come with it, especially for the Chili Peppers at this point, where they saw the release of their most successful album to date and the number of fans at their shows to prove it. But that early excitement couldn't hide the deep underpinnings of drug addiction for very long. Hillel actually wrote in his diary just a few days before the tour started about the optimism they had, but also frighteningly prophetic statements about his heroin addiction, writing, quote, "...been spending much time alone and for the most part enjoying it, except for fleeting feelings of self-dread and the sinking feeling that I've allowed myself to sink into a very scary and tricky place." These have been unusual days for me. Sometimes I feel tested. I do think of death often, not in a wishful way, just, I don't know, it would solve things. In brackets, cop out. I feel in a way that my time in a way is limited. It's not a strong premonition, perhaps just idle, strange, twisted thoughts. Anthony and Hillel both agreed to quit heroin before the tour started. They had lengthy conversations about quitting drugs, and they both knew it was negatively affecting the band. Anthony and Hillel both agreed to help each other kick heroin for this tour, and it worked at the start. Anthony, who was taking it a bit better than Hillel, tried convincing Hillel that he needed to go to rehab or go to counseling, but Hillel resisted, saying that his addiction didn't need medical attention. He didn't want to admit he had a problem and that somebody could help him. The tour went on despite the ups and downs. They headed to Europe in the winter of 1988, and that's when it became real apparent that Hillel was not in good shape. In his book Scar Tissue, Anthony wrote about Hillel lasting only a few songs during their first show of that European leg in London, writing, quote, We tried playing another song, and Hillel stopped and mumbled to me, I can't do this, and left the stage. I looked over at Flea and Jack and said, Do something. And then I ran backstage where Hillel was slumped over, crying into his hands. Hillel, you can do this. Get your fucking guitar and come back. No, I can't, he moaned. Cancel it. It's over. They would finish the show without a guitarist, and by a couple days later, Hillel was fine again, but those incidents were starting to become more regular. Now it was Hillel who had started to miss rehearsals, and Hillel had even broken his and Anthony's mutual rule of not doing any smack before a show. He was messed up and barely could perform, and they fired him from the band, only to last a few days before they let him back in. It wasn't like Hillel wasn't aware of everything and trying to stop. Him and Anthony would have long talks during this time about their drug addiction. To wind down the tour, the Chili Peppers had a few festival dates to play in Europe, before they would go their separate ways for a little while and be able to relax. In Scar Tissue, Anthony wrote about a long and deep conversation he had with Hillel during a train ride to one of their shows in Norway. He wrote that a lot of what they talked about was drugs and heroin, and where they were with addiction, and what they wanted to do about it. He said they agreed that the band was going really well and vowed to make a concerted effort to stop the drugging. In his book, Anthony wrote, looking back on that memory and knowing how important Hillel was to him as a friend, writing, quote, I always had a deep connection with Hillel. He had that capacity to allow people to go past the barriers of their comfort zone with how much they wanted to reveal to people. I set up those cutoff barriers all the time with my close friends, always reserving 25% in a mystery zone. But with Hillel, you were comfortable showing that hidden 25%. 
I bonded with him closer than I ever did to any other male. Maybe part of it was that we shared the sickness of drug addiction. You can't understand the experience of addiction unless you're an addict too. Hillel and I had that in common, but he also had a capacity for forgiveness that was beyond most mortals. No matter what you did or what your flaws or failures or weaknesses were, he would never hold them against you. Unlike Flea, who had a real scrapping brother-type relationship with me, Hillel wasn't competitive. He was paternal in a way. He wasn't a braggart. He wasn't a macho guy. The band got back to Los Angeles in June 1988. They all went their separate ways to recharge their jets for a bit, relax, and take a break before they would start pre-production for their fourth album. Anthony and Hillel went off with the mutual agreement that they would at least try to capture that drug-free lifestyle they had talked about so much. But they both knew the first thing they were going to do back home is find some smack and go on a binge. Weeks went by, and although the writing was on the wall, nothing could prepare Anthony, Flea, and Jack for the news that they were about to receive. After weeks without contact, police had found their best friend and guitarist dead from a heroin overdose on June 29, 1988. It was found in the autopsy that Hillel had actually died two days before in his apartment. Their manager, Lindy Getz, said it was a matter of Hillel being nearly clean and then suddenly scoring, and whatever he scored was too powerful and he did too much. Heroin finally got the best of Hillel, and at the age of 26, not only was the rest of the band members now without a guitarist, but without their best friend. Obviously, this shocked them, but what's not obvious is how to move on despite all that grief. All three band members took the death very differently. In an interview with Mojo Magazine, Flea said, quote, Hillel's death was just devastating. I was so shocked when it happened, I just fell on the floor gasping for air. As we started getting old and drugs became more and more prevalent, Hillel started having a deeper sadness to him. I didn't know how to deal with that sadness, and I don't think he knew how to deal with it. Anthony didn't know how to deal with it either. At first, he dealt with his depression by going heavier into his drug addiction, holing up in his apartment and trying to numb the pain. He was so messed up at the time that he couldn't even bring himself to go to Hillel's funeral. Anthony thought that going to a small fishing village in Mexico might help. Go cold turkey, get away from everything for a week or so, and get sober. And it worked until he came back to LA and he immediately went back to drugs. Anthony later wrote that it's a myth, but something like that scares you straight. Even when your close friend dies, you maintain this false sense of invincibility. Jack Irons, meanwhile, couldn't take the drama anymore. He called a band meeting with their manager, Lindy, and told everyone he was quitting, saying he didn't want to be a part of a band where the members were dying. And now, all of a sudden, it looked like it was over. The Red Hot Chili Peppers were now broken, and it seemed like all the momentum they had slowly built up was now gone to waste. All the years of grinding in the LA punk scene, all the years of barely getting any radio play, all the years of being cramped in a tour van across the country, playing to a handful of fans, to finally reaching some success and then having it crash land like it did, what the hell were they going to do? Their guitarist just died from heroin, their lead singer is battling in and out of his own addiction, and now their drummer is just left? But, as the saying goes, the night is always darkest before the dawn. And what at the time must have felt like the end of the road for Anthony and Flea would actually shape immensely how successful the band would later turn out. Jack didn't stay, but Anthony and Flea wanted to carry on the band in Hillel's honor. 
Without the struggles, without slowly reaching success, and without having it essentially disappear in an instant, Anthony and Flea, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers for that matter, wouldn't be who they are today. As dark as Hoel's death was, it shaped what the Red Hot Chili Peppers were at the time, and it would shape the band going forward. It was now time for Anthony and Flea to truly honor Hoel's life, and Waiting in the Woodworks was one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' biggest fans, an 18-year-old guitarist and a massive fan of Hoel's. His name was John Frusciante. Hey guys, thanks for listening to part one of a three-part series on the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the history behind their album Blood Sugar Sex Magic. If you'd like to keep up to date on when part two will be coming out, be sure to follow the Beyond the Beat podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like some of these stories condensed a little bit and in video form, I'll be launching the Beyond the Beat YouTube channel soon with a focus on the individual stories. And hey, if you have any suggestions on any albums you'd like to hear the history behind, let me know on Instagram or comment on YouTube. Thanks again.